Amen. Uh, this is uh, a, a morning where there is much joy that uh, we would march toward the cross to look toward the crucified Savior as we um, excitedly, in anticipation, look forward to His resurrection that we will share next Sunday. Um, it's, it's been an exciting morning for me. Um, Emily and I and the boys had an opportunity to go. Um, my youngest nephew was baptized this morning. I had the opportunity to baptize him. And, uh, man, it was just a beautiful moment to be there and to celebrate in that with him. And um, so we're, we're excited. And, um, Brother Corey, I could focus a little bit more on worship this morning. I had three wild things over here happening. And so um, it, it was an um, opportunity maybe to, to focus a little bit more on worship. But, uh, again, I, I encourage you to bring your kiddos here. It is a blessing that we could worship with, with them, that we would have little voices. They are not distractions. Um, the Lord says they are a heritage from the Lord, and so we are glad that they are here. And it is our calling as a church to disciple and to walk beside them. And so, uh, man, I, I miss them, but uh, it is, it's been great this morning to see the work of the Lord in my own family. And so I hope and praise it work in yours. This morning we're going to come to this, this simple um, yet profound three words. Son of God. Son of God. Eight times Matthew uses it. That's it. In entirety of his entire book, 28 chapters, eight times we hear the title, Son of God being used. It's the question of who is Jesus' true identity. And the reality why this is so pressing that you and I should even care about it, it's not simply that we would need to know the right things. It, needs, it impacts who you are. If you are in Christ today, this is your true identity. That who Christ is, that you being in Him by His precious blood, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, this becomes your identity, beloved. This is your Savior, but this is who you are, that you would share in His fellowship. Paul says that I might share in His sufferings, that somehow I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. There is a hope that our Savior brings unto us. Because I want to remind you, if your identity... Is in anything or anyone else other than him. It is temporary and sinking sand. We're reminded of that. Many of you are Kentucky fans and you are in mourning this week. Because you are reminded that your hope was in sinking sand. Some of you may be Cardinal fans and you've been reminded of that too. And no matter where your fanhood fits. Maybe it fits in your finances. But there are moments when those finances may fall apart. Or guess what? You may have your pockets so fat that you don't even recognize you have a need of anyone. Our moments of our identity being in our intelligence or our education or our degrees or our profession or whatever it is. If it is anything other than Christ, brothers and sisters, it is temporary and it will fail you. It will not sustain you. So I encourage you and I compel you. Come, let's go together to the cross to look at the Son of God. The first thing we're going to see today is the Son of God's identity is going to be questioned. Again, eight times Matthew uses the title Son of God. It's interesting that it's used um, in a place that maybe you wouldn't expect it. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But listen to our text. We're going to pick up beginning in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is on, it's Thursday night. Remember, he was betrayed there in the garden after the Lord's Supper. Friday, throughout the night, there is these, these trials that are happening under the cloak of darkness. Right, They're trying to get rid of Jesus. They're taking him here and there. And, and they're trying to find any way they can to get him crucified quickly under the cloak of darkness again. And look what happens. He comes before the high priest, Caiaphas. And he has some false accusations made to him. Pick up with me if you would. Begin in verse 61 of Matthew 26. 
This is one of the false witnesses who testifies against Jesus at his trial. This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. I charge you under oath of the living God. Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? There is that title, that anthem that's made that I want to draw your attention to. It's the first time that Matthew's going to pick it up here in Matthew 26 in the midst of Jesus' trial. You're going to hear it two more times from the cross itself as they call out and seemingly mock and jeer the Savior of the world. And then we'll hear it again next week as we come to the conclusion of what God's doing in Matthew 27. But again, here it is. Tell us. Are you the Son of God? It's interesting, the first time that we hear the title Son of God in the book of Matthew comes from the lips of the most obscene character, or the obscenest of characters in the entire book. It comes from the father of lies, the face of hell himself. The first time we hear the title Son of God is from the evil one in Matthew chapter 4. And the tempter came to him and said, listen to this, if you are the Son of God, Again, he says to him later in verse 6, if you are the Son of God, there's that question that he's being asked. If you are, prove it, show us. Go your own way. If you are the Son of God, provide validity to it. Show and do of your own accord. Act outside the Father's will. And he's whispering these things to him there in the garden. If you are the Son of God, twice. Jews, two of Matthew's total eight uses. 25% of the time that you hear the title Son of God is from the lips of Satan himself. There it is. It's interesting that twice more when we get to the cross in Matthew 27, a similar refrain is being made. Look what it says. Pick up with me, Wood, verse 40 of Matthew chapter 27. Jesus is on the cross and they are jeering and ridiculing him according to verse 39. And he says, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are who? The Son of God. See it again. Come down from the cross. And they go on to say, and we will believe in you. And then again in verse 43, we have the leaders of the, of the chief priests and others that come before him. It says, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires. For he said, I am who? The son of God. There it is. Four of the eight. Matthew's uses the son of God. And four of the eight. And we'll see another one here in a moment. Are those that are mocking or jeering calling into question the truth of his validity. Are you truly the Son of God? Are you truly who you say you are? Look what he says here. It's interesting, though. Verse 43, as they mock him there at the cross. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. Look what he says here. It's interesting. If he desires. For, he says, he said, I am the Son of God. So, like, hey, listen, if you're truly the Son of God, then let God prove it. Let God show up on your behalf. I mean, let God do something that proves that you are truly His. I mean, it's that moment of saying, you call yourself the Son of God, and yet you're on the cross. Do you not know the Old Testament says, cursed is everyone is what? Hung on a tree. You call yourself the Son of God, and yet you're on a tree. You are deceived. You aren't the Son of God. You are a blasphemer. You are cursed. Yet Paul will tell the church at Galatia, 
that He became a curse for us. He was taking your curse. This is your identity. That you are under a curse of sin and damnation and judgment. And yet the Son of God, He would step in your place and become the curse for you. For it is written, Paul says, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now here is Jesus being mocked. Here is His identity being questioned. The reality is you've probably been there. You've had times and seasons in your life when your identity spiritually has been questioned. You claim to follow Christ. You call yourself a child of God. You've been praying. Where's the children? Still no kids? Some God you must serve. You say this God loves you, but look how He repays you. Look at your finances. They haven't improved. If God was so good, then surely He could have saved that person you love. Surely He could have intervened. I mean, you say your God's so good, you call yourself a child of Him? The whispers, the mocking, the jeering, the evil one whispers the same thing so often in our own lives. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, for He said, I am the Son of God. Continually, the Son of God's identity throughout the book of Matthew is being questioned. Brothers and sisters, we should not be surprised when the evil one causes us to question. When circumstances in our lives will rock our boat. And what I will compel you and I to do is to return back to the Word of God. To find your identity here in Christ. To anchor in Him. So the Son of God's identity is questioned. But now we'll see that the Son of God's identity is is unveiled. Listen to what he says back here in Matthew 26. Again, he charged them under oath. I adjure you by the living God. Verse 63 of Matthew 26. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus says to him, you have said so. It's interesting. Jesus would use this same exact refrain in Matthew chapter 26, verse 25. It says that they are seated around the table there, partaking of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, the Passover meal. And as they partake in this meal, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. And the refrain is, surely not I, Lord, surely not I. And he says, what's well, one of you who dipped the bread in this cup? And Judas Iscariot takes the bread and dips it. And he says, surely it is not I, Rabbi. And in verse 25 of Matthew 26, he says, you have said so. There's something about this statement, you have said so. That affirmation of the fact that, yes, it is, you are guilty. But the truth is, it is much more than you will ever know or comprehend. Because Jesus is getting ready to explain to you and I what the identity of the Son of God truly is. It's interesting. Look what he does there. He, he compels this or, or connects what the high priest is doing. Watch what he does here. Look at this. I adjure you by the living God. He says, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He says, listen, there's a clear connection between the Christ and the Son of God, the Messiah and being the Savior of the world. But the confusion was is that the Jewish people didn't understand who Jesus was supposed to be. In fact, that's the disciples struggle, too, when he confesses that he's the Christ. And he says, well, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed in the hands of sinful men and suffer and die and be raised again. And that's when Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him, saying, surely not you, Lord. And he says, well, get behind me, Satan, for you have not the things of God, but the things of what? Man, he says, you don't understand either. But clearly there is a connection in the Jewish thought that the Son of God is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited deliverer, Emmanuel. Look what Jesus does, though. It's interesting. He comes back here and he tells him, he says, Jesus says to him, you have said so. 
But I tell you, said it, from now on you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus says, my identity is not what you think. There's those moments continually when his identity is being questioned. Right. And, and these moments happen throughout the book. Again, other times where Jesus identity is being questioned. His identity is being wondered. What is it? Listen to what happens in Matthew eight. Two demon possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us? Look what they call him. Oh, son of God. Have you come here to torment us? Have you come here to torment us before the time? We're now eight chapters into Matthew. Three different times the title Son of God is used. Two times from the lips of Satan in the garden or in the wilderness in the midst of temptation. And now from the lips of the demonic. Isn't it interesting that eight chapters and there's no affirmation from the people of God that he's actually the Son of God? Might we ask ourselves today, where's the church? Where are you? Where is your family in affirming that he's truly the son of God in the way that you live, in the way that you organize your daily life, in the way that you go about spending your time or your finances or how you live your life? Eight chapters. And it's but the evil one that keeps coming forth. These demons that are terrified of the torment that is to come. It's not until we come to Matthew 14 that we finally have Jesus followers making the good confession of who he is. In Matthew 14, you may know the story. Jesus spent time praying and the disciples have now headed on out and they've caught themselves in the midst of, of what? Do you remember what was happening? There was a storm, wasn't there? And Jesus comes doing something absolutely amazing. Do you remember what Jesus was doing in the midst of the storm? He came doing what? He came walking on the water. It's an amazing moment. Jesus is walking on the water. Why? Because Job 9 and 8 would tell us that it's God alone who could walk on the waters. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, the Bible continually shows us there's only one person that can tame the chaos of the sea. It's God alone. And yet now here comes this man walking upon the water. It's this man who will call Peter out of the boat in the midst of that scene and have him come to him. And it's this man that when they get back in the boat in verse 32, it says when they got into the boat, what do the winds do? The winds ceased. The winds were calm. There's one that can walk on water just like only God can in Job chapter 9 and 8. There's one that can calm the sea like only God can. Watch the response. Again, this is the one time the disciples used in the book of Matthew the title Son of God. Watch what their response is. And those in the boat worshipped him saying, Truly you are who? The Son of God. You're doing the things that only God can do. There's no, it's clear you are the Son of God. And what's the response to recognizing that Jesus is truly the Son of God? It's worship. It's worship. That's the response to recognizing who He is today, of seeing Him in His glory and His might. And so He says, listen, guys, throughout, man, you guys don't recognize, you don't see. And so it is with the high priest. I mean, this is the, the, the leader of the Jewish people. This is the guy who knows the scriptures unlike anyone else. And there he is standing face to face in Matthew chapter 26, saying, if you are the Christ, the son of God, then tell us. Look what Jesus does again. This is very important right here. It's a rich, rich verse. Matthew 26, verse 64. Jesus says to him, you said so. But right you're on to it, right? I am the Christ. I'm the Son of God. But not like you understand. Not like you perceive in this moment. Listen to what he says here. He says, you have said so, but I tell you, 
from now on, he says, you will see again. Here's the son of man. Now, what's interesting is, is Jesus has connected the son of God and the Christ to one of his favorite designations for himself, the son of man. Watch what he does here. It's interesting. Powerful, powerful moment of not only who your savior is, but who your identity is in him. Watch this. We'll walk through it. I hope and pray it's, it's encouraging to you. But I tell you from now on, he says, you will see the son of man. He says, I want you to know that I'm on trial right now and you don't believe that I'm truly the son of God. I get it. You guys are mocking me. You're not buying in. But I want you to know that even though you don't see my kingdom. Even though you don't see my angels, even though you don't see my father, even though right now you don't see my glory. Don't be deceived, beloved. It's still real. That's why Paul would tell the church that he says, listen, we don't fix our eyes on what is seen, but what is what? Unseen. He says, for what is seen is indeed what? Temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. He says, listen, th- listen, I want you to know, you thank Caiaphas, you thank high priest that you are in power. But I want you to know that there is coming a from now on. There is coming a time when you will see the son of man. You're going to see it. You don't believe it now, but I want you to know you'll see it. I mean, it's a moment in which we ought to take a, a encouragement that we've been praying right throughout all these moments and, and looking to the Lord. Man, it's a reminder of Jesus' words in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when they say evil about you and revile you because of me and you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For great is your reward, where? In the kingdom of heaven. I want you to know that you will see the Son of Man coming. He says, from now on, you will see the Son of Man. Look what else he says about himself. Not only will you see the Son of Man, he says, secondly here, the Son of Man will be seated. Throughout the biblical imagery, seated is the idea showing you and I that something is finished. When someone is seated, their work is finished. And it's interesting, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that if you are in Christ today, he says you are already seated with him in the heavenly realms. He says that your salvation is so secure in what Christ did on your behalf that you are already seated with him. That's how secure it is. He says, I want you to know that you will see the Son of Man seated. He says, listen, I know, Caiaphas, that you're standing here now and you're in power. But my kingdom is not in this world and I will be seated. You're a temporal judge. I am the eternal one. Maybe he might whisper to you, you may have gotten it over on your parents, but God still knows. You may have deceived your employer or the IRS. But there is a judge who the Bible says his eyes are like blazing fire. He's not missed anything. And he reminds the leader of the Jewish people and you and I, guys, don't be deceived. You will see this. Thirdly, look what else that he says to him. He says, not only from now on, you will see the son of man coming. You're going to see him seated. Look where he says he's going to be at the right hand of power. He says, I want you to know that he will be in power. In this moment, Jesus is in the midst of weakness. In fact, look what happens just a little bit later in the text. Matthew chapter 27. Jesus has been accused at this time and he, he's preparing to go to the cross. And pick up, pick, pick up with me, if you would, verse 27 of Matthew 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away 
to crucify him. He's a long way from the right hand of power. And the temporary right now seems to be reigning. But I want you and I to remember that our identity is not in the temporary moments of life. Our identity, guys, is entrenched in who Jesus Christ is. And he says, I want you to know I'm going to be seated at the right hand of power. The seat of blessing, the seat of favor, that I am maybe not exalted here in this moment. In this moment, you may seem to win. You may be seeming that your kingdom is triumphing. But I want you to know my kingdom is coming. I will sit at the right hand of power. Guys, that is encouragement for us as we pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy what? Thy kingdom come. And then we finish the prayer by saying, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Oh, sorry. Your kingdom come, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm struggling. Help me out. Come on now. Help me out. Um, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us not our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. But lead us. Come on. Help me out. Not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Here, this is where I want to hit. For thine is the what? Kingdom and the power and the what? What? Forever and ever. The kingdom, the power, and the glory is forever and ever, and it's coming. The things that you have prayed are not vain, and they are not fruitless, and it may not seem to be prospering in the moment. But I compel you, brothers and sisters, find your identity in the Savior who did not grow weary, who did not give up even though mistreated and abused and mocked and spit upon and seemingly forgotten. He just kept prospering. Prospering and pressing forward. I am struggling this morning to speak. Praise be unto God. That God says in the midst of our weakness, He is strong. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the weak to shame the strong and the wise. Fourthly, look what He says here. He will be coming on the clouds of heaven. He says, you may think that I'm not the Christ. You may mock me here and now in this moment as the Son of God. But I want you to know there's coming a day when I will come on the clouds of heaven. You see, in this moment, I am truly the one that's spoken of in Daniel chapter 7. I'm the one that's going to come on the clouds of heaven. You may think in this moment that you're going to crucify me and kill me, but I want you to know that death cannot hold me. The grave cannot keep me. I will rise again. I will return to my Father. And Revelation 19 says that for those that are in Christ, you will return and reign with Him. His identity is your hope, and it's ultimately your identity. His victory has become our victory. Well, the text continues and tells us many more things. But I know time is pressing. So I want to draw your attention here to something that's beautiful. In Matthew chapter 3, we have one of the two times in the book of Matthew that God speaks audibly. Right? You've ever wondered, man, I would love to hear God's voice. Two times in the book of Matthew we have God speaking. Look what he says here. Verse 16 at Matthew chapter 3 as Jesus is being baptized. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. It's interesting that Jesus is first identified and affirmed as the Son audibly by God alone. Look what happens here later in Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus' glory is revealed before Peter, James, and John. It says, as he was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is who? It's my beloved son. Again, the same affirmation is made. God, again, affirming the identity of the son. But you know what's amazing about it is, is what follows Matthew chapter three is Matthew four. And that's where Jesus is asked by the devil twice. Are you truly the son of God? If you are the son of God. 
It's interesting that in Matthew chapter 7, now uh, Mark 9 records the same account. And Jesus comes down from the mount. And if you remember that moment, there's a, there's a young boy that's got all kinds of things going on. And the man, the father, comes and says, listen, I brought my son to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. Jesus says, oh, faithless generation. And then the man says to him later in Mark 9, he says, Lord, if you can, help my son. He says, if you can. Isn't it amazing that after the father affirms the identity of the son, that twice Jesus faces great testing? I mean, you've been there, right? I mean, you've been on a spiritual high. You've had moments where you feel like you are walking closer with the Savior than ever before. And man, it won't take long that a season will show up and the waves will appear and the storms will come. And the enemy will start to whisper, where's your God at? Are you really saved? I know you were, you were just excited then, but I mean, are you really saved? Right? I mean, that's what's happening to our Savior. We must not get confused when that happens to us. We must follow His example of just remaining faithful and looking to the Word to derive our identity. Well, it's something that maybe be overlooked, but look what else He says to him in Matthew 3 and Matthew 17. Not only is this my beloved Son, look what He says about him. He says to him here, with whom I am well pleased. Again, later in Matthew 17, verse 5, it's the same statement, with whom I am well pleased. It's a sign of Isaiah 42. And Isaiah 42 is a reminder that one is going to come and suffer for the people. In the midst of God affirming Jesus' identity as the true Son of God, there is also the affirmation that He must suffer. That's the title throughout. As he uses the Son of Man, if you walk through Matthew and, and just read about the times he says, Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man, it's almost always connected to his coming suffering. And here it is again, that God speaks and affirms his identity as the Son of God, but also as the suffering servant for the people, the one that will be in your place. And that's where we come to his identity being tested. The Son of God's identity earlier, we saw that it was questioned and then it was unveiled. But finally, as we come to the cross, the Son of God's identity will be tested once and for all. It's verse 45 of Matthew 27. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me. I know of no scholar, no teacher, no pastor, no pope, no reverend who understands fully these words. It is a great mystery of God that God of God, light of light, as we'll see in a minute, would be forsaken by the Father. It's a moment in which, right, we might we might come to this text and, and we see it and we would say, well, it, we, we're not surprised that the Roman authorities would reject Jesus and turn their back on him as the son of God. We may not be surprised that the religious leaders, even though they should get it, that they turn their back and they don't recognize it. Brother Todd preached this a few weeks ago. Even though we hate to see it, we recognize and see that the disciples all turn their back on Jesus and it says they fled. But this is the moment of bewilderment and pondering that you and I cannot rush past. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. And surely Jesus, not only knowing verse 1, would have also known where this text leads. And so I will read it further with you. Continuing in verse 1. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And look what he says here. Yet you are what? 
holy. There's the beauty of the holiness of God, but there's also the terror of it. The beauty is that we serve a God that there's no fault, there's no sin, there's no darkness at all. But the terror of that is, is that you and I are not like Him. And our sin has separated us from a holy God. And in this moment, as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a reminder that whispers to us from verse 3 of Psalm 22. That the reason is, is Jesus has become our sin. That God is holy and because of his holiness and Christ becoming sin, as Paul says, that God made him who knew no sin to be your sin, to be my sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There in this moment, look back with me if you would. Verse 45, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land to the ninth hour. Darkness is a sign of judgment throughout the scriptures. Judgment has come. The wrath of God has come. The, 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 the pain, the suffering that is all there as you and I look at that. Listen, it is coming. And the question is, why? Why has God forsaken His Son? Why has God done this? Why has God permitted this? So that you and I will never have to know it. The Son of God, that is His title. That is His identity. And in that brought suffering and shame. That you could be reconciled to the Father. That you could abide with the God who is holy forever and ever. It is the good news of the gospel. It is the council of Nicaea that will confirm about Jesus that he is. And in one Lord Jesus, 325 A.D., the son of God, begotten of the father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made being of one substance with the Father. And yet, here's light of light, very God of very God, being forsaken. Why? Because He became our sin. Darkness is over the land, guys. God is bringing judgment. We're getting ready to see as we come to the rest of the text there in Matthew 27 next week. God is going to do some amazing things to affirm His Son's identity, to affirm what is happening here in the midst of this. But praise be unto God, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 10, that Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come, you realize there's a rescuer that has come, that you might not suffer, that you might not be cast out away from God's presence, that you might not experience eternal darkness. It's from Christ alone. I wonder, has your identity ever been questioned? Have you ever wondered who you are or are you significant? What's the purpose of your life? Why are you even here? Why would you be here now? Why in this place, in this time? Maybe you're experiencing moments and just testing of your faith and you're going through a rough season. I want to compel you. As 1 Peter 2 and 23 tells us, Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In the midst of this moment of experiencing forsaken by the Father, Peter says that Jesus yet continued entrusting himself. And how do we know this? Because verse 50 is going to tell us in Matthew 27 that Jesus literally cries out and he yields up his spirit. Luke chapter 23, verse 46, it says that Jesus committed his spirit into the hands of his father. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit in the midst of being forsaken. And some of you may feel that you've been forsaken. I compel you to the example and the identity of the son of God. Continue trusting yourself to him. 
Don't grow weary, brothers and sisters. Why? Because you know your God has never and will never forsaken you. Because Christ experienced that for you that you'll never have to know it. That's your identity as the Son of God. So I compel you, brothers and sisters, as we close. Keep trusting in God. That's what Esther did when she went before the king. She trusted in God. Trusting God, that's what Father Abraham did when the Lord told him he would be a father of many nations, yet he had no child, and he and his wife were barren and very old. Trusting God, that's what Nehemiah did, despite the fact that people were out there ridiculing them and telling them they were going to come against them as they were trying to rebuild the walls there in Jerusalem. Trusting God, that's what Hosea did when God said, go back and take your wife of whoredom. Trusting God, that's what Jesus is doing right here in the midst of the darkness. He's trusting his father in the midst of darkness. Do you see it, brothers and sisters? His identity, his example. And praise be unto God, His strength by the power of the Holy Spirit is in us that we might live this out in the midst of our own darkness. Jesus in the midst of being forsaken and us in moments when we experience being and feeling forsaken. No, not by the Father, but maybe feeling that way. We must continue to commit our spirit and our lives into His hands. This is your identity. This is the Son of God who came for you. He alone is our hope. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray today. Lord, today has been a struggle. I confess it, God, in this place. The enemy has racked my brain most of the time I've been here preaching. My tongue is feel like a Dr. Seuss book, flibber flubber. Uh, my tongue's not made of rubber. And yet, God, the beauty of your gospel has not changed. The Son of God's identity has not changed. My identity in Him has not changed, though I am weak and frail and oftentimes do not do it well. Father, I pray today that even my own foolishness and struggles would be an encouragement to my brothers and sisters here who are struggling and who feel foolish and weak and as if they often, too, don't get it right. Let us all the more... Come to Christ. Let us all the more grasp and reach to Him. Let us all the more rest in the fact that He will hold us and never forsake us. Let us all the more now draw strength from Him because His strength and power is perfect in our weakness. Let us all the more this morning, God, draw nigh to You. Draw near to Your love. Draw near to that deep, deep love of the Father. Lord, I pray all the more that You would increase our faith because at times, Lord, we confess with that man in Mark 9. I do believe, but Lord, help me overcome my unbelief. Father, I pray all the more that You would allow us to see the Son of God. Let us realize that one day we will see the Son of Man. And He will be seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Let us not miss the identity of the Son. No matter what is going on, the distractions, the things that are rocking our boat, the frailties of a preacher, praise be unto you, God, that you are not limited. Father, draw your people today. Draw them near. Love on them, God. Let them know that you're here. May the deep, deep love of Jesus may just be poured out over us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for dying for somebody like me, God. Father, I pray today that you would draw those that don't know your love, 
Those that feel unworthy of it right now. Those that feel like they've blown it and they're too far gone. Lord, would you just, would you speak your love over them? That you took the cross and the shame for them. Lord, I love you. And again, I praise you that you can use someone like me. Father, I give you glory and honor. Let's do your name. And I pray with the John. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. In your name I pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I compel you to respond to the gospel. I recognize that it is foolishness that there would be a God who was perfect and holy and yet would come and die in our place on the cross. It doesn't make much sense. It doesn't seem to fit the story that we would think. And yet it's in that place that on the cross, your sin and your shame could be taken away forever and ever. That in the cross, everything that you've ever done or thought that is wrong and against God, it was paid in full. That you could be free. Would you come and worship Him? Would you, If you don't know Him, if you've never experienced that grace and mercy, bro, Todd, I, others, there's many around here, would love to talk to you. Would you respond this morning to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Would you stand? Oh, 
Oh, let it be. 